0: Martinstein had a heart attack and had to crawl half a mile to get treatment. However, it was kept under wraps for years because they were worried that the production would be shut down at the studios. And the financiers found out that their lead actor had suffered a heart attack and almost died on set. Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now is regarded as one of the greatest war films in American cinema history. However, it was plagued by several years of insane production hell, but eventually he finished his masterpiece and dropped it in 1979. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Raiders of the Lost podcast, as you all know. And today we're doing one of the greatest films ever made, hands down, Apocalypse Now. This is an extraordinary film. And then I'm watching it again last night. I just couldn't help but be amazed at what Francis Ford Coppola accomplished. It's so extraordinary. It's one of the greatest pieces of directing in the history of film. When you look at the scale of it, the scope of it, the nitty gritty details of the hell, the landscapes of where they actually shot this and, and the actual shoot and production mayhem, it's a miracle that he pulled it off. He put a lot of his own money into this. He put $7 million of his own money. Back in the 70s, it's a lot of money into this film. And it actually was a three-year edit. That's how intense it was. They shot 330 hours worth of film, which is insane. And I was just watching this. I've seen this many times. But last night, I was like, how on earth did he pull this off? He did. And he's really – he is one of the greatest filmmakers ever. He did – Godfather, Conversation, Godfather 2, and Apocalypse Now. What the hell? Are you kidding me? Maybe the best run in the history of film. I can't think of a better run than that. He's up there for sure. I mean, Denis Villeneuve has had a terrific run the last 10, 15 years. Nolan had a great run. Tarantino's had a great run. That's never ended for a lot of those guys. Mm-hmm. But Francis Ford Coppola's run, the 1970s, is absurd because there's some of the greatest films ever ever made three of them mm-hmm. regarded in the top i think 20 i think apocalypse now it's an 8.4 in imdb nice and its number on the user rating list for imdb is listed at number 54 okay which is wild but the other th- he's got two in the top which is absurd i would put it in the top 25 of all movies of all time i put up there too i think that's a safe assessment dropped and released in 1979 directed by francis ford coppola written by francis ford coppola john millius and michael Hare. imdb like i said it's an 8.4 with over 700,000 user reviews and ratings rotten tomatoes apocalypse now is a 98 percent critic score that's insane for a war film 94 percent audience score on a budget of 31 million dollars it grossed $104 million at the box office. It won two Oscars for Best Cinematography and Best Sound. It had eight nominations in total. It was the winner of the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. and also won two BAFTA awards, including Best Director for Francis Ford Coppola. Off of $9 million, like Anthony said, he invested $7 million of his own money to the film after it went severely over budget. He eventually had to mortgage his house and Napa Valley Winery, Coppola Wines, to finish the film. However... Because of all this, in addition to, nobody wanted anything to do with Apocalypse Now, even though, you know, Coppola's the hottest filmmaker in the world, coming off the two Godfather films in The Conversation, winning five Academy Awards in the early to mid-70s, nobody wanted to be a part of this film. But he owns it completely because of that, so he owns us all. However, the financing and loans he had to take out for this film had an interest of 27%. Oh my god. On the dollar. <laughs> on that much? Insane. Then in the film that... One best director, Robert Benton won for Kramer versus Kramer that year. However, I think that, I mean, that's an all-time drama. But Apocalypse Now, it's regarded, and it, a- accurately so. as one of the greatest things ever. And I mean, what he did with this entire setting, I mean, there's so many elements to this film. You get this really interesting opening. Then we get some war. We get some action. Then we get the travel up on the river. And then we finish with the third act of this really spiritual journey uh, of encountering Kurtz. And it's just a fascinating film. There's really nothing like it. You can't compare it to anything. You can c- compare it to other Vietnam War movies and other war movies, but it still is very much like a beast of its own. And actually, it's quite different from the novel in, th- in the fact that in the novel, Willard is actually hired to rescue Colonel L- Kurtz However, in The Heart of Darkness. However, in the film, Coppola changed it to Willard is is tasked with killing him. So and he, also the book, it takes place in Africa, yeah, not in Vietnam. It was actually written in the 20s, I think. Either the 20s or 30s. So it's actually a very old novel, not set in Vietnam. And originally, like usually the military, American military, will help with war pictures by loaning vehicles, equipment, gear. And there's a lot in this film. There's so many helicopters. So There's so much firepower in this film. However, be, because of the change in the mission of an American soldier being tasked with killing an officer... The military, American military refused to give anything to the production, so Coppola and his team actually had to loan out all of the gear, vehicles, and everything from uh, the Vietnam, v- Vietnamese military. No, not Vietnamese. I'm sorry. They, so they wanted to film in Vietnam, but there's mm. a war going on at oh, the yes. time. So they didn't film in Vietnam. They filmed in, the, filmed in the Philippines, a country that had a bunch of U.S. military gear and weaponry, vehicles, helicopters, everything, weaponry. And also that ran into another problem with them where – the Philippines were in the middle of a civil war. So sometimes the helicopters, they had to be taken for the day to go bomb or go be participate in a battle Incredible. during a civil that's, war, that's which crazy. is insane. But that's why they filmed in the Philippines. It's because uh, Saigon had fallen when they were looking to film it there. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah you can't really film a movie during the, in the middle of a huge war. war. <laughs> <laughs> well, ironically, George Lucas was first tapped on to make this film. Well, actually, I have a great timeline I wrote out. Oh, let's hear it. So I have a timeline that includes all this stuff, and it's about basically the production hell that I went through, but a quick synopsis on the film. Let's hear it. In Vietnam in 1970, Captain Willard, played by Charlie Sheen, I mean Martin Sheen, <laughs> Martin Sheen, <laughs> takes a perilous and increasingly hallucinatory journey upriver to find and terminate Colonel Kurtz, played by... Marlon Brando, a once-promising officer who has reportedly gone AWOL and mad. In the company of a Navy patrol boat filled with street-smart kids, a surfing-obsessed Air Cavalry officer, and a crazed freelance photographer, Willard travels further and further into the heart of darkness. Now, obviously this was plagued in one of the most horrific, horrific productions ever done, I think. Of all the stories you hear about reshoots and... Just things that happened on set, this is up there of all time, so... Yeah, it almost killed him. Do you know what the original shooting schedule was? It was... well, it was just gonna be... not 60 days, right? That it was, was gonna go- be six weeks. Of That was what they originally scheduled with the studio. The six, first shoot? Six weeks of filming. Well, I'll explain what happened. <laughs> Holy crap. So, first of all, the script went through ten different rewrites. So, John... Per- Merrilis... Mer- Merrilis... Merrillus, Merrilis... Merrilis... Yeah, yeah, the screenwriter. He wrote 10 different versions of the script before they went to production. George Lucas, like you said, was attached and eventually was scouting locations, but then went on to make Star Wars instead. So George Lucas, he actually wanted to make it a mockumentary, and he wanted to film it during actual war areas with, with like a documentary-style feel. That was his plan. What's great about that is... Uh, Coppola has a cameo in Apocalypse Now as a filmmaker on location Mm -hmm. of a war. Keep running past the camera. Keep going, keep going. Keep running past the camera. (laughs) So Coppola stepped in and began developing the film in 1974 because he was very intrigued by it. However, like I said, nobody wanted anything to do with this project after George Lucas dropped out. Also, sorry, Orson Welles was the first director ever attached to the film. He wanted to make it as his first film. And the studio was like, this is going to cost too much money. And so they're like, give us another script. And he gave them the script for Citizen Kane. (laughs) Like Andy said earlier, Coppola approached the U.S. Army. you turned him down because of having it a mission where you're killing an officer of the U.S. military. Shot in the Philippines, like I said, because they had to use U.S. military and choppers and vehicles, which they had access to there. Francis Ford Coppola originally approached Steve McQueen. Jack Nicholson, Al Pacino, and Clint Eastwood to be the star of this film. Eventually, Harvey Keitel was signed on and cast as Captain Willard in Apocalypse Now and even went to production. But after a few weeks of being there, he quit due to creative differences and Martin Sheen was fluent quickly to replace him last minute. Also, Al Pacino refused the role because he said, I quote, I know what this is going to be like, Francis. You're going to be up there in a helicopter telling me what to do, and I'm going to be down there in the swamp for five months. It's <laughs> <laughs> way worse than you could have imagined. And, and then Coppola said, Al Pacino would have starred in the film if we shot it in his New York City apartment. <laughs> <laughs> Jack was right. It's, it's actually way worse, though. Now, a couple weeks into production, what happened was a typhoon hit the Philippines, and destroyed most of the sets that were built to start filming. So they had to basically scrap everything, rebuild everything, already six weeks behind schedule and millions of dollars over budget because all of their sets were destroyed. And because of this, much of the crew and some of the cast just left. They abandoned the project and went home to the United States. They're like, I'm done. This is a bad sign. Let's get out of here. We've been here for two months, and we haven't even filmed anything. Oh, my God. Then Marlon Brando eventually showed up six weeks late. Hadn't read the script or the book and was very overweight for the character, and that's why most of his sheen- scenes are shot in darkness because Coppola is trying to hide how big he had gotten for the role. And Colonel uh, Kurtz is actually written in the novel as being tall and lanky, whereas Marlon Brando was actually only five foot seven, and so he was just very stout. Brando's only five seven. Five seven. Wow. He, doesn't he look big on screen? He probably must wear lifts or something. He's always looked massive. I can't believe yeah. he's 5'7"? 5'7". Five, seven? Five, seven. What? So, But they filmed this perfectly. There's actually a, a great Italian cinematographer who did a, a bunch of great Italian films. He Vittorio did, Storaro. He, so he's Bern- a three-time yeah. Oscar winner. He's Bernardo. He was Bernardo Bertolucci's cinematographer. Yeah. And so they filmed it, and they made... Marlon Brando looked massive in this movie like he looks like he's 6'5 he's just a monster in this I always thought he was six feet or something like oh. that Wow I can't believe Marlon Brando is 5'7 So Martin Sheen and him are both like about the same height but they made They made Brando looks Kurtz enormous looks huge yeah He looks enormous in this film Now moving on to some more plagued things that happened on set So we uh Brando shows up not only did he show up late and hadn't read the script or book He refused to learn his lines and improvised pretty much everything that you see on camera except for the the quotes of the t.s Eliot poems, especially the horror the horror those are all planned obviously but a lot of what you hear was actually recorded from an 18 minute improvised take of him talking in that temple and one of the sound designers said that they used two minutes of that actually in the film and it's a lot of what he says is just that he went on a rant for 18 minutes and they, the filmmaker said... Oh, and Tim, when, yeah. um, when Willard gets there? Exactly. So they said a lot of it... They said half of it was nonsense, but then half of it was just pure brilliance. And they ended up using two minutes worth of that dialogue that he just said on the scene. Also, like I said, there was a civil war happening in the Philippines, so battle sequences were very difficult to pull off because sometimes the Philippine armies would have to request their choppers to be called away for real battles... So they couldn't film those days, which is insane. Cast and crew were abusing drugs and alcohol regularly. Specifically, Martin Sheen was going through a mental breakdown. He was abusing alcohol immensely. Hopper, Dennis Hopper's in this film, he was having trouble performing in his scenes, and he basically, basically, Francis Ford Coppola asked him, "What do you need, Hopper? What do you need, Hop?" He's like, "I need an ounce of cocaine." <laughs> so Dennis Hopper performed his scenes clearly high as a kite in every scene, but pulled it off. But Cocaine was rampant on the set of this film for cast and crew. <laughs> Cocaine is a hell of a drug, and so for the freakout with Martin Sheen, so what happened was Martin Sheen told the crew in that in the hotel room to let the camera just roll. So you talk, so he, he's talking so they talk about the opening scene. Yeah, yeah. So he said let the camera roll. Sheen was really drunk. He punched the mirror for real, which was real glass. Cut his thumb open, and then he began sobbing and actually tried to attack the director during that scene. The crew was so disturbed that they wanted to stop shooting, but Sheen insisted they keep the cameras going. At that time, he was fighting a drinking problem as well as other personal issues, and he got caught up, so caught up in the scene in his own inner struggles that all of this chaos actually happened. And that he actually said after the fact that continuing the scene helped him face his problems. And in an interview with him and Coppola, they said that like he's he uh, it was a big impact on him as a person to like get that out of him. And so he's covering his face with blood. That's real. That's all. Just he told him to, co- to roll the camera, and you can actually see when he goes on the ground, he's completely naked. But he does cover up his genitals for a se- like at the last second. So that's, there's a little bit of awareness of, of him in there. But the whole th- the whole scene was just him. Doing his own thing. He was going through a real mental breakdown Mm -hmm. and a real bender. And basically, yeah, like they said, they rolled the camera. It's absolutely insane. Want to hear another crazy Martin Sheen thing? Well, hold on. Let me keep going through this because that was on this list. So let's just let me get through this thing right here. So I got some more on this timeline. Next up. So let me catch up. So I left off with Hopper and an ounce of cocaine. (laughs) Brando and Hopper did not get along on set and refused. Brando refused to be on set at the same time as Dennis Hopper because he didn't Appreciate his unprofessionality. (laughs) So Marlon Brando thought that Dennis Hopper was unprofessional. (laughs) So all of their scenes, they have a couple together, were shot separately at different times where they couldn't be on set together. Real dead bodies were used from a local morgue at the temple and the third act of Apocalypse Now. This was obviously a horrific thing to do, and police came, and they took the passports of all the cast and crew as well as all the bodies back to... He put back because they weren't from a local morgue. They found out they were from grave robbers. What? Grave robbers. (laughs) What the fuck? Sometimes Martin Sheen, when he was on this insane bender, was being replaced by a body double. Sometimes it was his brother, Joe Estevez, who also did a lot of the voiceover narration because even after the film happened, Martin Sheen was unavailable for... Reshoots as well as voiceover narration, which wasn't part of the original script, but after the second round of reshoots, Francis Ford Coppola, when he was editing this for three years, added narration and voiceover from the character Willard. And Martin Sheen was very busy. He was unable to perform the voiceover, but he has a brother named Joe who sounds exactly like him. So Joe mm-hmm. Estevez does a lot of the voiceover narration in this film, as well as was acting as a body double for Martin Sheen for some of the film because Martin Sheen had a heart attack and had to climb crawl half a mile to get treatment however is kept under wraps for years because they were worried that the production would be shut down at the studios and the financiers found out that their lead actor had suffered a heart attack and almost died on set they did, they told the studios heat exhaustion crazy. instead of a heart attack crazy <clears throat> now martin emilio, emilio. Wasn't avi- he wasn't available <laughs> Um, after filming, wrapped, Copa went back to the United States. So the cast and crew, they were like, Oh, we're done. Finally, thank God, we finished filming Apocalypse now. Mm-hmm. But after putting the film together, Coppola realized we have to go back to the jungle. We have to reshoot again. So after a year, they went back to the Philippines to reshoot, which was supposed to be 60 more days of filming. It turned into 230 days of extra filming, which is absurd. Because of this entire production, Francis Ford Coppola lost over 100 pounds from stress, had a seizure, a mental breakdown, and became suicidal multiple times. So the reason for the reshoot was... Since they were shooting in the Philippines, there was no there were no film labs in the Philippines. So they weren't able to get any dailies. Now dailies like we also, said, they couldn't like, see what they were looking exactly. at. Exactly. So they weren't able to see their footage the next day or even within a week. That's ballsy. So what they were they <laughs> filmed it blind. They filmed the entire thing blind. And so all the film was just constantly being shipped to America and it was never getting shipped back after being processed at the lab. So Coppola didn't see any footage until he came back to California a year into shooting. And then when they went through all the footage, that's when they realized we need to do a lot more work because they weren't able to see what they were filming. Because there was no there was no kind of film lab situation or industry at all in the Philippines or in Southeast Asia at the time. They also didn't really have an ending. Mm-hmm. They didn't really have an ending once they got all the footage together. And so the is like, we have to go back and figure out how to end the movie and redo the third act, basically. Wow, That's insane. I didn't know that they couldn't see what they were filming. No film lab. No dailies. Holy crap. Also... Let's see what else we got here. Like he said, it was about two to three years of editing this film, which, I mean, I spend a day editing an episode. I'm like, I'm right, when is I this over? Do <laughs> <laughs> imagine doing three years of editing on the same project. Eventually came out in 1979. And to quote Francis Ford Coppola in an interview after the entire production, everything came out and all the drama was released, he said, we had access to too much money, too much equipment, and little by little, we all went insane. <laughs> and there are multiple crew mutinies as well and i'm sure this is just the the stuff we got told about there's a lot in the uh the documentary heart of darkness yeah that's that's a really cool doc i saw it a couple years ago yeah so there's a lot of stuff in there and i mean this this movie it's just it's insane that they even pulled it off what's also really specific about this film is there's no credits so if you notice when the film ended if you watch it on netflix and a couple other streamers it, there's no credits, It's just a copyright logo yeah, at the end of right. the film. Oh, yeah. Coppola didn't want any credits at all. It went right, I was watching it and it went right to the next up. <laughs> and you, you actually only see the title in the film. It's graffiti written. It says uh, our motto, Apocalypse Now. Oh my god, I never noticed that's that. That's the only time you see the title and then there's no credits at the end or in the beginning. So it's, it's like a rare film where there's no pre-roll credits or post-roll credits whatsoever at all. It's a great title for a movie as well, and it was actually inspired by a button badge popular with the hippies during the 1960s that said Nirvana Now. God damn hippies! God damn hippies! <laughs> it's a private road! A private road! <laughs> <laughs> and the legacy of this film is immense. It went on to obviously be one of the greatest American films ever made, movies in general ever made. In a s- part of a stellar career from Francis Ford Coppola, who's for some reason often gets left out of best director of all time lists. I know, right? Isn't that why? He made cause, arguably three of the best ever. Maybe because he hasn't made that many movies in the last 30 years? I think that's probably why. Yeah. In the 1970s and 80s, he was the guy. But, you know, the last 10, 15, 20 years, not, some, not a ton of movies. I think that's a good point. He's actually reason. the main reason, obviously, he has a connection to The Doors. So the, the, Is that why he opens it up with it? Yeah, so The Doors... Their music is so synonymous with this movie. And in a way, it acts as like the score for the film because mm-hmm. so much of their music is used in the film. And also, like, created this. like I, I, I've always thought, I've always picture, I've always like connected the doors to Vietnam because of this film. You know what I mean? And I think maybe another film might have used a couple of their songs as well. But Francis Ford Coppola actually went to film school at UCLA with all of the members of the Doors. Oh, no way. They went to film school? Yeah, and so Jim Morrison agreed to let Coppola use the masters of their music for the film. And the five-and-a-half-hour early assembly cut was scored entirely using just their music before any score was written. So he edited the film initially to just their music. So that's why that's the Doors cool. are used so often. Yeah, and they- actually, ironically, Jim Morrison's dad was an admiral, admiral in the uh, Navy. During and Vietnam? A- during Vietnam, and he actually ordered missions in Vietnam. Isn't That's that wild. crazy? That's pretty wild. But, you know, like I said, the legacy is timeless. The movie's going to be an all-timer forever. And Roger Ebert, considered one of the finest films on the Vietnam War, and included it on his list for the 2002 Sight and Sound Poll for the greatest movie of all time. In 2002, the Sight and Sound Director's Poll of the greatest films of all time was ranked number 19. Is on American Film Institute's 100 Years, 100 Movies list at number 28 all-time, but dropped to number 30 on their 10th anniversary list. Uh-oh. oh <laughs> What else do we have? AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movie quotations included I Love the Smell of Napalm in the Morning as number 12 of all-time movie quotes. In 2006, the Writers Guild of America ranked the screenplay by John Millius and Francis Ford Coppola as the 55th greatest ever script. Is number 7 on Empire's 2008 list of the 500 greatest movies of all time, but it's probably way off it now. We've seen Empire's <laughs> recent lists. I think. They probably have Guardians of the Galaxy ahead of Apocalypse Now. <laughs> no offense to Guardians. <laughs> they re-ranked it number 20 on the 2014 list of 301 greatest movies of all time. And then, oh, here we go. It's, it bumped even further down to number 22 in 2018. That's still high, though. Yeah, still high. Still high. <laughs> I mean, still low. Let's see what else we have. So, <laughs> that was an unsubscribe. We always mix that up, yeah. saying high instead of low. The Guardian named Apocalypse Now as the best action and war film of all time. In 2016, The Hollywood Reporter ranked it 11th among the 69 winners of the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. The New York Times included it on its best 100 movies ever list entertainment weekly ranked as having the best 10 the 10 best surfing scene of all time in cinema one of the best surfing scenes ever which <laughs> is, the bombs. it might actually have the best surfing scene ever in cinema it's the most ridiculous one and for there sure. are four different versions of this movie we have the original theatrical cut then there's actually a work print that you can watch it's a five and a half hour cut it's not technically a movie because it's pretty much it's the assembly every bit of footage that you could mm-hmm. access and someone put it all together and it's called a work print edition and basically the assembly cut There's also the 2001 director's redux. And then the 2019 final cut, which... That's the one. Francis Ford Coppola was heavily involved in because people weren't happy with the redux. And then he stepped in in 2019, made the final cut to fix the redux. Well, Apocalypse Now is actually mistakenly talked about as something with a film that was changed because of studio interference. Now, there are plenty of films historically that have been forced to make edits because of studio interference how like Blade Runner is a prime example however the the cut so people thought for years that the theatrical cut wasn't Coppola's cut but it actually was he was actually the main producer and funded a lot of the film and he preferred that cut when they released it like he made that he cut out that much footage because he felt it was stronger for theaters ended up being dissatisfied after the fact then he put in forty nine extra minutes for the Redux, and then after a few years after that, he was like, "I think I went a little overboard with that. It's not as strong anymore." And I've seen it. And there's like a whole, f- there's a whole sequence of a of a farm. Was it a tobacco farm? I think. And it's really slow. Um, it doesn't quite work. It's it's it doesn't quite quite fit in the film. And then with the final cut, he cut out twenty five of those new forty nine minutes, and it's a trimmer cut. And I believe he cut out the entire farm sequence that he put in um, on the Redux, and so the final cut is the what Coppola considers his his final version of the film. Yeah, and you know I still prefer the theatrical cut. I've seen the Redux, I have not seen the final cut, but I've seen the Redux and I've seen the original. Yeah, it's like they have that they have lunch at that estate mm-hmm. with the with the wealthy people. It's cool, but I watched it the re- I watched the theatrical cut last night. It's actually great. It's awesome. It's fantastic. It really is great. And I got to say, I can't believe this film didn't win editing Oscar. It's one of the best edited films I've ever seen. I mean, the opening scene. It might be the best opening scene I've ever seen in my life. It's it, so, it, in the, so the cinematography by Vittorio Storaro, and then they had three editors, three years worth of, three and a half years of editing. I'm sure they couldn't contractually have an editor for that long because they're moving other, onto other projects. So Lisa Fruitman, Gerald Greenberg, and then Walter Murch were the three editors of this film and Coppola heavily involved in the editing as well, just not credited. So it took them so long to edit it, but the editing really is... that was That's something that stood out to me on this newest rewatch. I was just like, the editing of this film is unbelievable. It could be the greatest editing ever done in cinema. And then the combination of both the cinematography and the editing of this film is pure magic. And there really, truly is nothing like it. And like you said, the opening is so strong because we get that long shot... It's about two minutes of the tree line, with that yellow smoke. And it's just so visually striking. Yeah, it desaturates the palm trees, yeah. and it's beautiful, but also tragic and and horrific. And it seems like we're we're in this this jungle, this oasis, but then it turns to hell. Then we get the napalm strike, and this is actually footage that they didn't use in the film. He never planned to do this as the opening, but they had so much footage, incredible footage of the fires and the explosives. That he's like, "What if we open with this?" And so you see the tree line just get obliterated with fire, and then that's cross cut and is diso- cross dissolved with this incredible cinematography of Martin Sheen's Willard in his hotel room going mad, sweating, and we get these incredible panned <clears throat> close ups of his face dissolved and in superimposed over the burning trees, and then we get this the cross dissolves with the fan of his room acting like the propellers of the helicopters and the sound design is really incredible. The sound design is like the first five minutes we just hear these, it's like- We hear war. Yeah, we're at war, but we hear the propellers of helicopters, but they're like, there's some effects on them. Mm-hmm. And they sound very distorted. And- With the guitar riffs. Yeah, with the guitar <laughs> riffs. And then it's just like that entire editing sequence of the dissolves of these superimpositions, uh, Martin Sheen, the fires, the trees, the, the landscapes, unbelievable and it's just like jaw-droppingly beautiful yeah it's an incredible way to open the film i think it's insanely powerful it might be like i said the best opening scene in the history of cinema we get a pretty much a strong sense of what this movie is going to be like this character who even though he's not in the war he's not in vietnam right now he's in saigon actually he um he can't leave the jungle. He's stuck there mentally. He's stuck inside the jungle still. Yeah, He's got so many great voiceover work here. He says things like, I'm still only in Saigon every time I think I'm going to wake up back in the jungle. I'm still waiting for a mission. When I was there, all I think about was getting home. But then when I was home, all I was thinking about was when I can get back. And he wants a mission. He's waiting for it. He's going insane He's going through. He's getting, he's going through madness, you know. Like it, we were talking about earlier, this, this is really Martin Sheen having a mental breakdown, but his character's having a mental breakdown as well. And I love how they said they. I eventually got what I want. They brought me a mission. and They served it to me on a silver platter. And, they delivered it like room service. Yeah, delivered it like room service. They come to get him. <clears throat> and you know, Captain Willard. We eventually find out he's such a great character. He's got this addiction to war. He's got an addiction to the jungle, to the calamity of men, to to death to devastation, to the horror that Kurtz talks about. He's addicted to it. He can't be away from it any any longer. Yeah, like he said that whenever he goes home, he can't wait to get back into war. And so he's got this, uh, this addiction and attraction to be in war, and it's really stunning. We see that a lot in, in a lot of wartime films nowadays, that psychological... Trouble of trying to, you, you can't fit into the normal world anymore, yeah. normal society. And one of the best shots of the movie is during the dissolves, and you're you talking about how they're superimposing the footage of the explosions and the fire of the forest in the jungle with Martin Sheen, the close ups of his face. There's one where he's lying down before the montage ends, where he's just smoking a cigarette in his bed, like looking up at the ceiling fan, and then there's fire inside of his head, basically, yeah. and it's just. Obviously, it's clearly a metaphor for his the inside of his brain right now. He's just his mind is a mess. His mind's at war. Still, it's gonna be one of the most interesting opening five minutes of a movie ever. And there's really no story at all. It's no plot happening. But once that's over, especially like the first time you watch this film, you're like, I am, I am hooked, and I am in, strapped, ready to go. The movie's got a great story. Mm-hmm. He's a captain. He has a great rap sheet in terms of. Basically being a special a solo Special Forces agent in a lot of ways. He's an assassin. He's taken out people for the CIA. And obviously when he's going to get interviewed basically by the general, Harrison Ford's there in the scene as well. They're going through his rap sheet and everything he's done. They're asking him questions about his work, and he denies everything ever ha- happening. And also, if such mission existed, I wouldn't be allowed to talk about it. So basically we're learning that he's an assassin for the army and for the government. Yeah, and this is a great scene. We get a lot of Coppola regulars. <clears throat> and so the general of this scene, does he look familiar to you when you watch this movie? He looks wicked familiar. He's the senator in Godfather 2. Oh my God, that's what it is. I should—I didn't look it up the other night when I was watching. Yeah. I'm like, what is this fucking senator guy? Senator in Godfather 2. Who tries to muscle Corleone. Yeah, tries to blackmail him, yeah. Yeah, he tries to muscle Michael. Yeah, isn't it's, it's amazing. And then, We don't like your kind around <laughs> here. And we obviously get an early Harrison Ford role who actually named his character uh, Colonel Lucas after George Lucas, who gave him his first big shot with American Graffiti. Yeah, and the thing is, this was filmed before Star Wars. So this came out in 1979 however harrison ford wasn't a successful actor yet we've talked about this before on the show he was an actor struggling to get consistent work using some stuff here and there he's an american graffiti he was in this but he's also working as a carpenter and that's mm-hmm. eventually you know he obviously knew george lucas and he was building some shelves for george lucas at his house and george had him read lines as han solo for actors and actresses that were coming in to do reads and mm-hmm. to audition basically for star wars then eventually he's like you know what? How, why don't you be Star? Why don't you be Han Solo? Be Star Wars. But this was yeah. after he had filmed Apocalypse Now. However, this came out several years later. It came out in 1979, even though he probably filmed it in 1976. Yeah, he looks so much younger because Star Wars yeah. was 1977. He came. He, this yes. he filmed this in 1976, so yeah. he filmed this before he filmed Star Wars. So it's a common misconception that that Harrison Ford was a huge star, but it obviously helped the movie because people were like Harrison Ford this? "Why is he only in one scene?" It's mm-hmm. because he wasn't a star when he filmed it. Yeah. And he's he's great in in his role, and I love the editing of this this scene in particular because this is the scene where they inform him about the initial information about uh, Lieutenant Colonel Kurtz, just Colonel Kurtz, Sorry, the Lieutenant Colonel is the other act is the other character, and so we they play that recording of Kurtz's insane ramblings, and then we learn just you can tell the general is uh, disillusioned in. Grief stricken about what's happened to his friend, he the actor does a great job of showing that on his face and in his in his tone of voice how he's saddened by what's happened to clearly a, a man he's known for a very long time and said he he respected him so much. But then during these insane ramblings, they cut to like close ups of the food and the prawns. I mean, and this was made in the seventies when Americans weren't as like cuisine interested as we are nowadays we weren't try- they weren't trying that many foods and we was, weren't even even yeah. eating avocados here it's just cheeseburgers <laughs> and pizza here so <laughs> hey, prawn- there were other things okay there are we yeah. had steak anthony steak eat. too but like prawns were like a very out of place thing for americans so to show that the food and the, the vietnamese cuisine interlaced with the the over the uh, the dialogue of Kurtz on the recording i found it just to be just very fascinating editing to even do that uh, as a director and cinematographer to even make those decisions. It's really great. And we learn a lot about Colonel Kurtz throughout the entire film. This, we get our first information from it. But throughout the course of Apocalypse Now, Willard's narration is him studying the files that he gets both from the initial interview here as well as later on when the boat he's on gets their mail At the the shithole of the world, basically, is what they call it. where they get mail, and he reads more classified information. And basically, throughout the film, we learn a lot of things about Colonel Kurtz. He was an outstanding officer. He was a special forces, but that led to his mental break. He has an absurd pedigree. He's third-generation West Point, the Academy. He's a Harvard graduate. He has a 1,000 decorations. Sometimes good does now prevail. Why did I write that down? That's something that—oh! oh (laughs) <laughs> that's what the general says the general says yeah. that yeah so I wrote that down be- I, I, sometimes I uh, sometimes bad wins and then sometimes well, I, I look at the win. general yeah. as, a, as a very hypocritical character and obviously a representation for just war yeah I mean and the hypocrisy of he thinks he's in the right because of what they're doing in Vietnam Wheeler has that great line is how do you charge someone with murder in a place like this exactly now Colonel Kurtz has a perfect career almost too perfect however you know he was being set I have an up an immaculate record <laughs> immaculate records. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> most people don't trust people with immaculate, immaculate records. I have, I have immaculate. immaculate record. <laughs> it's outstanding. It's outstanding. Now, he was being groomed eventually to become a general. He was a riser. He was one of the smartest people in the army. And he, at 38, he rejected everything he was about to get and requested airborne to return to Vietnam. Now, airborne would be just basically an infantry. You were being demoted, basically, and you're going to go on the ground. Now, this is a shocking thing to for someone to do, not just who's already an officer, but someone who's 38 years old. And Martin Sheen's voiceover, Willard, says that I did it when I was 19 and it almost killed me. You know, it kicked the shit out of me going to airborne, going through just the training. But he does it at 38 years old, obviously an insanely motivated and hard individual. Why the fuck would he do that? He gave up on this career. And then once he was back in Vietnam, he started going AWOL. He started basically... Doing his own missions, and there was a big controversy with the army where Colonel Kurtz goes on this a mission and kills people and and achieves a goal that the military needed for the army. However, he was not authorized to do it, but because it was such such a success, they couldn't really do much about it. They couldn't really punish him. So he, and, but then he eventually stayed, and he basically created himself as his own army, his own god to these specific specific local people in Vietnam and Cambodia, and now he's operating as his own authority, as his own god in this world. And he's executing people as the judge and executioner as well. But it's a great hypocrisy for the entirety of the war and the U.S. government or any major power at war where they're going after him for the actions he's doing when if they looked in the mirror, they're doing the exact same thing. Yeah, that's what makes it such a great Vietnam War film, for sure. And then this is when... Well, hold on, just real quick to stay on the Vietnam War aspect of it. I think a lot of people, when they look at Vietnam War films or war films in general, especially one like this, they might say that or think that it's glorifying war. This movie does not glorify war. It shows the devastation of war and how it destroys people and destroys lives. There, like Coppola is not showing these sequences like destroying that tr- that uh, little tribe and that little village for fun. He's doing it to show how horrible it is. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. So the Ride Ride of the Valkyrie song it was actually written in the story it, the whole story in the part of that song is actually the Valkyries riding to war just before they're defeated and it's ironic it's chosen ironically because america was defeated in vietnam and so that was the whole point of using that song cuz it fit narratively with what they were trying to do with the film and it's been i mean in the film jarhead it showed that like the army likes to show it to recruits to get them excited and amp them up for wartime and so it's a completely misinterpreted scene by probably a lot of people to think that it's like encouraging it and glorifying it and showing it as like entertainment but really that choice of song is was chosen for that reason as a showing that it was related to the america's even involvement in it right before their own defeat i completely agree yeah i didn't know that that that's what the music meant yeah now Willard is given a mission by the general and the intelligence officer to terminate the colonel. Now, normally, this would not be a big deal for Willard, who's already killed people for hire. He's already been an assassin for the government, for the CIA. However, this is the first time he's been asked to kill an American, and not just an American, an American officer in the army. So, he's accepted the mission, basically because he just needed to get back into the jungle. He needed to go back. However, he even says in his voiceover, "Willard, I don't he wouldn't know what he was going to do once he found Kurtz." And he'll he'll do the mission in terms of getting there, but when he meets Kurtz, he's not sure if he'll be able to kill him. Yeah, he does call it a prime mission at first, but he is questioning the idea of cuz he says he's he, he mentions he's killed like eight men. Six and that it, I know of. Six that I know of close and they were close enough where I could feel their last breath. But none of them were American. And then being an American officer is even worse in his eyes. So you know, it, he feels like he might be betraying what he even stands for by going on this mission in a way. But he does go on the mission because he needs to. He needs something to do. He needs to get back into the jungle because he's addicted to war. And then we get we meet the whole crew. And so Lawrence Fishburne is clean or Mr. Clean. Mr. Clean. So this, this is the Navy boat that's taking him up the river. Now, Lawrence Fishburne was actually 14 years old. He's 14? When they made this movie. He lied about his age. He lied about being 17. So they thought he was 17 when they cast him. But he's only 14 years old. And ironically, it actually suited because a lot of men who sign up for the military actually lied about their ages too. Mm-hmm. So it actually kind of suited the character. That's wild. Then we have uh, Frederick Forrest as Chef J. Chef Hicks, who's a... Tetley, while former chef from New Orleans. I just want to cook. I just want, I just want, want to cook. cook. There was a tiger. The tiger scene's crazy. <laughs> yeah. He goes through a mental breakdown after that. Did you know that because of the a, br- a year a year yeah. break between the reshoots? So the scene where they just stop the boat for a little bit, and Chef wants to go get some mangoes, and obviously Willard says, "Don't go alone, and I'll come with you." Basically. They're walking through the jungle to go get the mangoes. And then obviously, while they're in there, they think they're gonna hear Charlie. Charlie is obviously Viet Cong or the communists in this film. That's what they would call him. They would call him Charlie. And, the, but instead it's a tiger that attacks them and they get away from the tiger. And then they get back to the boat. And that's when Chef freaks out, he has a mental breakdown. I just wanna cook, I what am I doing here? So from the point of filming, when they filmed going into the jungle to go find some mangoes with the tiger, and then when they went back to the boat, there's a year difference in between filming that from the tiger to them being on the back to the boat when Chef's freaking out. Insane. A year in between filming. Just within the, the same minute. The same, same scene. scene. <laughs> it's insane. That's unbelievable. <laughs> a fucking year. You can't tell. You can't tell. We also have Albert Hall as Chief Petty Officer George Phillips, who runs a tight ship and he's the the captain of the ship. A little boat, I would say. Not exactly a ship. We also have Sam Bottoms, who's Gunner's mate, third class Lance B. Johnson, a former f- professional surfer from Orange County, California. <laughs> and that rounds up the crew of this boat that he's basically well, he's catching a ride on to get up north. He, they don't know that yet that they're going into Cambodia. They just think they're going taking him up north on a ride. They, mm. It's classified information where he's going and yeah. who he is. He can't tell anyone what the mission is. And then we made the iconic... Robert Duvall as Lieutenant Colonel Kilgore. He was nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor in this role, even though he only has eleven minutes of screen time in this movie. He won the BAFTA. He won a BAFTA for this. Wow! And this is just an amazing performance. He just steals the scene, and he—you kind of miss him when they leave. You know what I mean? He's a horrible guy, though. He's a horrible. Yeah, but he's what a great performance. Oh, absolutely. But but it's interesting because he's like this surf obsessed kind of hippie. Plays guitar, loves to hang out on the beach. And he's also the commanding officer that carries out horrible attacks and onslaughts and destruction on local villages on the coast. I think that Colonel Willard is in this whole sequence of him, especially the attack on this small little village, is a giant representation of the United States in the war. You know, this they try to bring him like they You Col- mean Kilgore? I mean, I'm sorry, Kilgore. Sorry. Gotcha. Uh, Kil- yeah, Lieutenant I agree. Colonel Kilgore is a giant representation of the United States in the war because mm-hmm. they try to obviously bring their culture there. They're surfing. They're drinking beers, on the beach, having a barbecue as well as all they really care about is having a good time. In addition to just running amok all over this country and they find that six foot that six foot peak surfing area. And that's when they go up and they they take out that little village which I think this entire scene of the village the attack with the choppers is a giant metaphor for the war in Vietnam how quickly they take out this village with their immense firepower mm-hmm. and how destructive they are they slaughter people they obviously lose some soldiers as well but the leaders don't care that they're losing soldiers he just all he cares about is his, his surfing 6 foot peak mm-hmm. he wants to get down there and surf but they're in and out basically just like the United States were in Vietnam they were there for several years but once it was over it's like what was the point of this was this a feudal event was this a feudal war mm-hmm and all this left is just fire and destruction and that's what makes the whole ride of the valkyrie sequence so powerful is first of all the actual <clears throat> production of it is unbelievable the cinematography the editing this is just like some groundbreaking stuff just the footage of the helicopters flying it's incredible it's unbelievable and we get that great silhouette. There's, like, 14 helicopters flying towards us. Like, I just... I can't believe the organization of this movie, how they pulled this off. And then this sequence is huge. It's massive. They destroyed... They built this village, and they destroyed it. And there's so much destruction. There's so much firepower going on. And there's so many vehicles and so many helicopters. And th- there's... Like, every time you there's a shot, even on the ground, there's a helicopter in the background. It's, like, unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Jaw-dropping. Jaw-dropping. And... This is this film actually most of the dialogue is completely ADR because there was so much <laughs> so many vehicles they couldn't hear anything and so a lot of the film is all done in voiceover I'm mean, not voiceover but voice recordings after the fact of filming and this sequence obviously and all these helicopters flying around you're not going to be able to hear anything when there are choppers that close but then it's like it starts with like this entertaining opening but then you see villagers running for their lives and then innocent people getting slaughtered and then also you hear the derogatory terms that the american soldiers are, are shouting out and you're like this is just like this is becoming hell and becoming difficult to even watch it really it, the the scene the sequence takes a turn you know what i mean and it, it's really powerful i think in that regard i think so too it's one of the most powerful scenes in the movie and again it's not glamorizing it it's just showing how showing how horrible it is because it happened and you know what's going to happen right now is we're going to go to our superlatives oh yeah then our intermission and take a moment and take a break and then get back to our episode on Apocalypse Now. So let's get into our inter- our superlatives. Anthony, James, who is the MVP of Apocalypse Now? Francis <laughs> Ford for Coppola. 100%. He's just pulling it off. I can't believe he did this and didn't die. He almost died. He almost died multiple times. He threatened committing suicide multiple times during filming. I know. It's crazy. Innocent. Lost 100 pounds. <laughs> oh my God. It's nuts, man. It's can't nuts. believe it. No he's wonder str- why the guy doesn't make that many movies. Can you imagine the stress involved with making this one? Yeah. Well, it also shows me that how everyone's been doubting his new film, Megalopolis. And he's like, bro, bitch, I made Apocalypse Now. <laughs> bitch. I, made it, I made that movie in the jungle. They're like, oh, Francis Ford Coppola is wasting $200 million. First of all, it's his own fucking money. He can do whatever he wants with it. Also, he made Apocalypse Now. Oh, he tec- pulled it off. Technically, I helped fund that movie because I love the Coppola wine. <laughs> <laughs> what, Apocalypse Now or Meg- Megalopolis? No, Megalopolis. I'm a co-producer. I'm an associate producer <laughs> you'd have to buy quite a bit of the wine i have i have purchased quite a bit <laughs> <laughs> i agree so francis ford coppola is the mvp obviously of apocalypse now who is or no what is the best scene of the film i would say the ride of the valkyrie scene is the best it's the most impressive piece of production i've ever seen especially in terms of action and also like we were just saying earlier it's extremely tragic and destructive and very powerful and resonant and it's hard to even recover from the repercussions of that sequence. It's hard to re- recover from this film after you watch it. Yeah. I think the best scene is the opening with Willard going mad inside of his house, Great as well pick. as juxtap- juxtaposed and dissolved with the destruction of the, the jungle in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. It's just a, a sensational opening. It's mouth open like, what am I? I can't believe I'm watching this right now. Every time I see it, every time I see it. What's mm-hmm. the best shot? Actually, one of those shots of the opening in particular, it's a close-up of... Basically straight on with Martin Sheen, he's on the left of the frame and superimposed with the silhouetted flames uh, burning trees. And it's, it's. I think it's the most uh, beautiful part of the entire film. Like that's the most incredible image of the entire cinematic experience. That that shot in particular. I think the best shot is during the ride of the Valkyries of just the helicopters coming yeah. onto this beach. It's just mind blowing. Dude, the fucking POVs of the helicopters are like shooting rockets. But then when it's this beautiful beach undisturbed and these people who live there they have a kinship with obviously the earth and in the, their land and everything but now it's about to be destroyed but there's these helicopters flying onto the beach basically just like 20 feet above the air mm-hmm. shocking terrifying menacing it's almost like gods of war arriving to your tribe or your, the your village exactly yeah. yeah it's almost like it's like the, the villain theme song approaching exactly yeah. yeah that's how i look at it yeah that's how i look at it man what is, or no, who is the best actor of Apocalypse Now? Marlon Brando. Oh, you're giving it to Marlon. <laughs> Dude, once he shows up on screen, it's like, oh my god, this is insane. And it's, I think he should have been nominated. How do you feel about him not reading the script, reading the book, memorizing lines, and just improvising the entire thing? <clears throat> well, uh, Marlon Brando is one of the most misunderstood actors. Do you know, you know about the cue cards? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, th- I mean, there's uh, there's plenty of behind the scenes footage of him and the Godfather, and Robert, Duv- There's a great shot of Robert Duvall in The Godfather, and he's got cue card on his chest, like taped to his chest for Brando to read. And Coppola never had a problem with it. So there's a great interview with Coppola talking about Brando, and he said that was just Brando's method. Brando believed that if you knew the lines, you couldn't accurately portray someone speaking because when we talk, we're coming up with the words as we're speaking in real time. And so he felt that if, if you know the lines beforehand, you can't give a true performance. And so... He preferred to have the lines on set, without knowing them. Cue cards everywhere in every movie he worked on. This was his this was his acting process. And that way, he didn't know exactly what he was going to say next, just like we do in a real conversation. We're we're just going with the flow, and build and going off of each other. And so Brando liked to do that in his performance. So he didn't he never really memorized his lines ever. Probably maybe early in his career getting his work up improving himself but definitely after he won his Oscar for on the waterfront I guarantee he never memorized his lines for any movie he was in so that was his acting process and so it really works I mean but how but here he's not memorizing he's not reading any cue cards yeah. he's making it up now as a director if I'm Francis Ford Coppola I'm like what the fuck man can you just read some lines well yeah I mean it's a crazy it was a crazy production before that but again when you're hiring Mar- Marlon Brando, you know you're you're in for fucking anything. Yeah, you're getting and everything that comes with them. He because he was he. I mean, even hiring him from the Godfather, the studio had to put out like a million dollars of insurance on him. He was he was notorious for being crazy, like a crazy person to work with. And so, in a way, it's kind of an, it's in a way it's unexpected, but then also expected. But ultimately, I mean, his character works. Yeah, it does. And it it wouldn't have worked if it was like a military officer. In, like in, like what it was written as in the book, I, I'm sure. Because Marlon Brando is like, he's not even like human in this role. He doesn't even feel like a person. He feels like more than a human, more than a man. And everything he says, it, what they have in this film is absolutely extraordinary. The things he's saying. And I mean, there's so many things he Brando did. Like when he's with the kids, like he, he, he just asked them to bring the kids over. And he's like, I'm just getting to hang out with these kids all day. And they filmed that. Like, that was never planned. And, like, just wandering around, just, like, touching things and using props. And that's just what Brando did. And he brought so much to it. And he added this incredible mystique to Colonel Kurtz that, you know, earned all of the buildup. It's two hours of buildup. You don't see him at two hours into this movie except for a photograph. And it's also very striking where all we see is that portrait, the military portrait of him. Very clean. Very professional-looking, military man. That's all we see of him until the first reveal of him, bald, wearing linen, and just like this, like monstrous version of himself. So I think that contrast is just so brilliant. And really, the last thirty minutes of this movie is so special because of Marlon Brando. There is another photograph. There is a silhouette of him, poorly lit, of him. Yes, yeah, more recent. Yeah, but and you can see bald, a bald head. But it's, who is this? What is this figure? He looks like a mysterious God or something, Mm -hmm. but Coppola was actually reading him the book in his trailer. (laughs) (laughs) I gotta give you something. (laughs) I gotta feed you something, (laughs) but I mean, it, it, it works, man. It does. It It really does. I give Martin Sheen best actor. I think he's phenomenal in this movie and I think Martin Sheen's just an all timer and this was a huge role for him. And he's a legend, you know, he's a legend. He's got a great, he's, he's has an acting family. The Sheens, the Estevez, his obviously his his first name is Ramon. His name is Ramon Estevez, Martin Sheen's real name. Changed his name when in the 1950s as he was becoming an actor to obviously try to get more roles because of prejudices. He's half Spanish. His father was from Spain. So he changed his name from Ramon Estevez to Martin Sheen for his stage name. Emilio Estevez's son kept Estevez as the last name. Charlie Sheen, whose real name is Carlos Sheen, took his father's stage name, and Joe Estevez obviously kept the last name. Ah, very cool. So it's interesting how... Ramon sp- Estevez. Yeah, Ram- his name's Ramon. It's legally still his name. He never changed it legally. He just, it's a stage name. And he, d- he has come out saying that he regrets not going by Ramon... Estevez early on in his career and and wish he, if he could go back in time, he would. Mm -hmm. However, you could argue that maybe he wouldn't have gotten specific roles if it wasn't for, you know, the time is if you're a Hispanic actor, you probably couldn't get many roles. Mm -hmm. So Martin Sheen's a very, I mean, on paper, he probably wouldn't even been put in auditions just from on paper. Probably. Now, what is the best line of the film? My favorite line is actually a Brando improvised line You're an errand boy sent by grocery clerks to collect a bill to collect the bill you're an errand boy sent by grocery clerks <laughs> to collect a bill my best line is also a brand line and it's the last words that colonel kurtz speaks mm. he says it multiple times but his final words before succumbing to his wounds given to him by willard are the horror the horror then he dies nice thanks i That's also ho- t.s Eliot quote <clears throat> yeah I also have a couple of fun letterbox reviews if you'd like to hear them. You know what? I think I would. Nice. I'm glad. <laughs> so Maria gave Apocalypse Now four and a half stars and wrote, I love the smell of Marlon Brando inventing acting through three seconds of screen time and literally obliterating obliterating every other actor in the morning. Also name bomb. <laughs> <laughs> then Suspirilium. Gave it four stars and wrote, wow, Sofia Coppola's dad is actually pretty good at the whole making movies thing. I guess he takes after his daughter. <laughs> <laughs> then uh, Adam Bolt wrote three stars. Dude just really wanted to surf. <laughs> Dude just wanted to surf. <laughs> <laughs> Number one Gizmo fan gave it five stars. Real patron. <laughs> Real Letterboxd patron. This movie is pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking letterbox, man. Then Marjana gave it five stars and wrote, I refuse to believe that this lost best picture to Kramer versus Kramer. I just know Coppola was embarrassed too. <laughs> I mean, it obviously should have beat Kramer versus Kramer, but maybe in the 70s people were sick of Coppola winning so many Oscars. I mean, yeah, they can't give Michael Jordan the MVP every year. Yeah, you have to spread it spread it out a little bit. I think bit. I think that's a good point cuz Coppola yeah. obviously winning five Academy Awards before he made Apocalypse yeah. Now. You know they're probably like oh, I can't give him every award and then the not 1990s. another couple of- <laughs> Kramer versus Kramer is great, but yeah, this is it's also not a, it's not Apocalypse Now. This movie's also ahead of its time. Way ahead of its time. How about now we'll head to our intermission and come back and talk about Apocalypse Now some more. But before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost podcast is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast. Why would you want to become a patron besides helping us support the show financially? You get awesome perks. You get weekly bonus episodes of the show. uh, Two every week. And also, I mean, the weekly chat, which we used to post publicly, is now only... On weekly uh, is only on patreon now which you can link your spotify with as well and listen on patreon and spotify together which is pretty cool you can also get access to the ad free version of the show you can get access to our discord you get private episodes custom episodes private video thank yous stuff like that free merchandise our patreon has so many cool perks and we love to give y'all so many things. Because we appreciate you. <laughs> I don't really know where I'm going. So I'm, yeah, you're all I'm pull, you're off the I'm rails, man. Rando and I'm, I'm just improvising you are off everything the rails I'm saying. The horror of people who don't sign up for our Patreon is immense. You can also sign up with the link in the description of this episode or just go to patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Another great way to support the show is to leave five-star ratings and reviews on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I know every podcast says it, but that's because it really does help us get seen by new people on these platforms and chart, you know, there's... 4,000 other podcasts that have two white guys hosting it, talking about movies. we got to stand out. Probably a million. <laughs> Fortunately, we're twins. We have that going for us. But we need your help. And Yeah, it's probably a million of those. No, talk about movies, it's probably 4,000. Talking about movies, yeah. yeah it's pretty, it's pretty it's accurate. 4, I think. that's right on the money. <laughs> you can also support the show by sharing us. It's the best way for a show to grow organically is word of mouth. Share us on Instagram, on Twitter. We repost everything Send this to your friends, friends, your family members, anyone you know. I they going to say Fremens. Anyone you know <laughs> who loves war movies, loves Apocalypse Now, send them this episode. I'm sure they'll love it. Thank you so much to this, for your support all around the world, everybody. Anthony's going to take it away with some sort of ad read. Go. A little now. faster than that one. <laughs> you ain't got nowhere to be. A little be. more direction than that You ain't that got nowhere one. to be. This episode, of course, is sponsored by our friends at MoviePosters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Be sure to use our promo code Raiders10 at MoviePosters.com to get 10% off your order right now. Some of the coolest posters of all time are a couple of the Apocalypse Now posters. And if you want to get one for yourself or for maybe a fan of the movie that you know, be sure to go to MoviePosters.com. They have all sorts of sizes, framing, and even backlighting for your poster needs, as well as a selection of pretty much every movie and TV show in their poster library. They have high-quality prints, everyone. We got these all over our house and all over our set. The best you can get for your buck So for all of your poster needs Go to movieposters.com And use our promo code Raiders10 Right now To get percent off your order Now let's hit into our intermission Let's do it the Movie quote competition time Are you ready? Ready Girly, tough ain't enough <laughs> <laughs> Girly, tough ain't enough <laughs> Million dollar baby right, get up out of your chairs open the window, stick your head out and yell and say I'm mad as hell and I'm not gonna take this anymore one more time get up out of your chairs, open the window stick your head out and yell and say I'm mad as hell and I'm not gonna take this anymore dead poet society Hmm. I don't think you've seen this one. I don't know, man. Network. Oh, network. Moving on. <laughs> you should watch it. I think I've seen it a long time ago, though. Guess this movie release here, Anthony. A fistful of dollars. 76. Way off, man. 1968. 19- um, 1964. Damn it. Damn it. What year did Network come out? Nineteen seventy two. Seventy-six. Same year as Taxi Driver. Yeah, one won Best Picture. It did? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's cool. Alright, movie pop Let's quiz go. time. Anthony, can you name five other Vietnam War films? Shit. <laughs> there are quite a few, so I yeah. think I think you can pull it off. Let's see. Platoon. Yeah. Um Yeah, but on the spot I always forget fucking titles. Um Full mail jacket, two. Uh, fuck. Let's see. Hold on. <laughs> Shit. God damn it. Um uh, Vietnam War movie. Oh my god. Um Force Gump. Three. What was that? Three. Three. <laughs> <laughs> um hmm. Vietnam War films. Oh my god, I'm just I'm blanking, man. Um You're doing really well. You're doing well. Born on the 4th of July. 4 Um fuck. Come on, come on. I can do this. I can do this. Think. Think. Think about war films and then what's like war films with palm trees in it? <laughs> I mean, it's a good way to go about it. <laughs> Shit. Oh. You got this. Um... We believe in you, man. We believe in you. Man, I don't know. I, I'm stuck. I would've also accepted The Deer Hunter. Oh, fuck! <laughs> Some other one. I just watched it! I <laughs> know, that's why I'm, you probably hate it. Hamburger Hill. I and we also that. have Casualties of War. Good Morning Vietnam. Oh, my God. Born on the 4th- Oh, you said Born on the 4th of July. Let's see, Coming Home from 1978. We Were Soldiers, the Mel Gibson film. Defy Bloods from Spike Lee. Oh, man. yeah. Tiger Land, which is, a I think Colin Farrell's in that one. The War, Faith of Our Fathers, First Blood. Oh, my God. Well, uh, yeah, there's some flashbacks. Yeah, there's some flashbacks yeah. in that. And some other ones. Yeah, man. There's a there's quite a few yeah there's a lot quite a few but you did pretty well man I did okay last the full measure we have danger close all right, all right we got it we got it this is the greatest beer okay, run got, ever we got it we got it we have all right my quiz question <laughs> rescue don <Dawn. laughs> oh yeah I love rescue don yeah all right Robert Duvall co-starred in what two Tom Cruise movies Robert Duvall and Tom Cruise movies. That's a good question, too. Two of them, huh? He had to take off the coat for this one. He's taking the coat off. <laughs> <laughs> got to focus. Focus. You know, getting a little warm in here. You know, I got this coat for free, for me, from you. You got it for free as well. So Robert Duvall and Tom Cruise movies. Rolling Thunder. No, um, that's not what it's called. Fucking. You got the right idea, though. Rolling Thunder. What's it called? <laughs> <laughs> is that like a sports <laughs> team or something? What is um, that? Rolling Thunder. <laughs> what's it called? Fucking I can give you a hint. Thunder is in the title. Yeah. Um fucking uh, the the racing movie. Fucking something thunder. Um It's Days of Thunder. Days of Thunder. Days of Thunder is one. So there's another one, right? You said? Yep. There's two. One of two. Robert Duvall and Tom Cruise. Is it F- not nah, eh. I'm not. I'm not saying the firm, but it's my next guess. <laughs> in the back, it's on deck. It's like right here. I'm not saying that's my answer right now, but while I'm thinking, I just want to throw that out there, and I want to see your reaction to me it's saying. Swarming up right now. The firm is not my answer. <laughs> that's a guess. It's a, it's a backup guess. That's a guess. It's a backup guess. A guess. It's, a backup guess. it's right. The firm is no, right. No, it's not. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> 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 no, I said it was a backup guess. <laughs> no, you lied. <laughs> <laughs> it's not right. All right. Duvall and Tom Cruise. Come on. You know this. You know this. Um, is it the century? Yeah. Do you want a hint? No. I do not want a hint. Maybe. You want a hint? Um. <laughs> sure. Your hint is sniper rifle. Sniper rifle. Duval, Tom Cruise, and a sniper rifle. The Jack Reacher. Jack Reacher. Who's Duval and Jack Reacher? He owns this, the shooting. Oh yeah, there. the the shooting range. range. Yeah, he owns the range. That's right. Helps him out at the end with a oh sniper God. rifle. Takes out like ten bad guys with a sniper. That's right. I forgot that, that was Bobby. Yeah, it's Bobby. Good question. Good question. Huh? All right, Anthony who we have for haters this episode any haters any unsubscribers? we have one who we, we have with? one we have from one. our friend um you have a friend <laughs> 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 this is uh alex biscardi all the way from philly alex rare on our uh da, 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 da. wait uh 2023 I, I made a clip about it being the best year since COVID happened and Biscardi wrote, Rare Raiders L. This is easily the worst film year since 2020. Unsubscribed! <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty good year. I think he was being sarcastic. Talking Maverick didn't come up, but you know, it's way better than 2020. Yeah, like 10 movies came out in 2020. We don't have a new review on an Apple Podcasts, so we're going to skip that. That's all right. We just recorded last night, I so. Know, but you know, we would love some more reviews. You got to get those numbers up. Rookie numbers right now. But my streaming recommendation is another Vietnam War film, which is on Max right now, starring Willem Dafoe, Platoon. <sighs> uh, you just <laughs> Ben Stiller her <in> traffic. Uh, <laughs> she gets shot like 30 times. <laughs> Survive! Survive! <laughs> Survive! I'm a lead farmer, motherfucker! My streaming recommendation is Flight. Starring Denzel Washington from director Robert Zemeckis on Max. It's a really good movie. Really good. Now let's get back into Apocalypse now. And, you know, after after Willards is with Kilgore and his escort, basically, his cavalry escorts, he's then with this boat. He was with the boat before, and they lifted it up, obviously, then dropped in the river further Mm -hmm. up. And now they're basically traveling up north. And they reach a couple destinations. Oh, there's a there's one thing we forgot to mention that I, that I find like really horrific is that uh, Kilgore places a, like cards from a deck of cards on Death all of dead bodies yeah. to as a as a signal to who did this, and it's just a really horrifying part of war. And yeah. also, the guy with his guts out was based on an actual true story. Of he says the line Kilgore, so he gives the canteen to that guy. So the the canteen canteen scene was actually based on a true event. ...of a wounded Viet Cong fighter who fought while keeping his entrails strapped to his belly with a cooking pot. The incident was documented by photojournalist Philip Jones Griffiths. And the real U.S. soldier in the moment actually quoted as saying... ...any soldier who can fight for three days with his insides out can drink from my canteen any time." So that was actually taken from a real event. That's wild. So after the Kilgore sequence with cavalry and escort, they continue their journey... On the boat, there's three really significant things that happen. The first one is the captain stops a boat and is sort of takes upon it his himself to do sort of a routine check mm-hmm. to make sure they're not smuggling anything. And they get trigger happy in Lawrence Fishburne's character, Mr. Clean, unloads on them as they're going through the, the ship. That chef's searching and kills everybody on board. Because one of the women was going for a barrel, which mm-hmm. had a little puppy in it. Mm-hmm. Really sad, yeah. tragic, and I'm sure things like this happen regularly. In yeah, the, it's, it's awful. It's a tragic, horrible scene. And then Lance takes the puppy mm-hmm. to take care of it. And then the crew, as throughout the film, all all of them are starting to lose it. Specifically, Lance. Oh, sorry. There's another thing that happened in the aftermath of the, the beach um, sequence of the Valkyries. There's like destruction going on. There are helicopters flying everywhere, there's fire burning. People die, dead all around them, but then there's a priest uh, carrying out mass for several soldiers, and they're actually praying and like they're doing the body of, the, of Christ and everything. That was such a sh- striking juxtaposition of things, and a Catholic church is being erected. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's sort that scene also reminds me when I said earlier it sort of feels like just one big metaphor for the war. Yeah. in Vietnam, it's so similar to Aronofsky's mother, where the entirety of human civilization basically takes place in this two-hour movie, in this mm-hmm. house. It sort of feels like that. The entirety of the war is shown, like what happened in just this one scene. Yeah. And obviously just replacing culture with culture by bringing a Catholic church in there as well. Mm-hmm. And this whole sequence, the the river sequence, is like a whole other like chapter yeah. of and, the film. And as it's they're going, like I said, as they're traveling up this river, they're all losing their minds a little bit more, more and more, except for the captain. He's the one keeping it together. And... They get attacked a couple times. One time they get attacked with bows and arrows, and then another time they get attacked with flares. It happens a little further along in the film, and Mr. Clean gets killed with by the flares. Yeah, the he flare, gets the flare, attack, flare in the chest. And then the captain gets killed by the arrows. A spear gets a spear gets thrown into his chest. Mm-hmm. Before the, their deaths, they make a pit stop at this bridge, which is also well. S- we're, you skipped the U.S.O. show. No, it happens here. Oh, I thought that Clean got killed after. No attack. Yeah, that's what I mean. No, yeah. Clean... I, I said their deaths happened a little further along in the film. Okay, gotcha. So further along right. in the film, that's when they die. But I'm mm-hmm. So going back, the first big stop is at this bridge, which is also basically uh, an area that there are supplies. Yeah. This is where they get oil, I mean gas for their boat and everything, as well as they get offered tickets to go to the show. You want to see the show? And it's a USO show of Playmates, Playboy Playmates come and dance for the soldiers and it gets rowdy <laughs> real quickly and they have to take off and leave. It was a real Playboy Playmate played the Playmate. Oh, no way. Yeah. I can't remember Interesting. her name. But then, this is actually based on a true story. There was a Playboy Playmate who was a performer in the 1950s for Soldiers, and she was so beloved that she was made a, a certified GI wow. by the military. That's wild. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then before Mr. Clean got, dies and before anyone gets killed on the boat, they enter basically what's called the biggest shithole in the world, which is this circus sort of. Warzone Bridge. Well, first I want to talk about the USL show. Okay, cool. Before we move on to it, I think it's really interesting, and it's also scary because like they bring the girls on in by helicopter. They like helicoptered them right onto the stage, and there's like hundreds of soldiers. I haven't seen a woman, an American woman, in who knows how long, and it's like it's kind of scary. Whenever I see this film, I feel scared for the girls. There's all these guys that are just trying to like. They would probably do anything to go run up on that stage, and they do. What's being kept, though? There's barbed wire. Barbed wire and soldiers are guarding them from their own soldiers. It's just a really crazy situation. But also, like, I guess soldiers needed things like that to, like, let loose and to maybe be reminded of home. But whenever I see that scene, I'm, like, horrified for the girls of, like, oh, my God, what could happen to them? And then the, the men do run on stage, and, like, there's a guy that jumps onto the helicopter. Two of them. It's a crazy they're, they're set like, piece. They're dangling on the helicopter as it's flying away, taking the girls away. It's crazy. It's a huge it's set unbelievable. Piece. It's massive. They yeah. built that whole thing, man. It's wild. It's just crazy that that stuff just happened in the middle, middle of the country. Yeah. And then this is where they also... Well, the next stop is where they get mail. Yeah. And Willard starts to get more information. So the next stop is, like, a horror movie where it's this basically sort of a no-man's land. They stop at this bridge, which feels like a circus war. It feels like a hell. Yeah. A circus in hell. That's how I like to think about it, because the weird circus music as well as the lighting. And basically, this is a bridge that's constantly built and destroyed, built by the army, then destroyed by the Viet Cong, consistently back and forth. And it's kept open only so that the—what does he say? So that the U.S. Army can say that this is an open bridge or its open path. Yeah. Even though it gets destroyed, and obviously it gets destroyed as they're leaving, but it's terrifying because Willer's trying to find the CEO, trying to find a commanding officer, and he keeps asking everybody. And the first person he asks is like, "Ain't you? Aren't you the commanding officer? <laughs> yeah. You're a captain." And then everyone else basically tells him like, doesn't answer him, it says there is no CEO. Yeah, and then there's that the, the, with that mortar fire guy, and he, he's the grenade launcher. The, the grenade yeah. launcher. He, he they ask him, he he just like smiles and walks away. But they there's that crazy sequence with him where. They hear a person screaming in the distance across the line, and then he just fires the grenade. They can't kill him. Yeah, and then silence. So there's like a confirmed kill. Like they stop screaming. Like that guy's dead. It's wild because there's it's basically the Wild West, and this does there's feel, no order. There feels like hell. Yeah, and all the soldiers there, they look like they're in hell. They're all they all look like they're go, they've gone mad mm-hmm. in a way, and they don't last very long there, and they pretty much just get out without getting killed, and they continue their journey up river. And then this is where the two deaths happen. First, Clean gets killed while he after they get they get the mail at that circus war zone hell. And unfortunately, Mr. Clean, he's listening to a tape that his mother sent him, and it's a very sweet thing. But suddenly they're attacked by flares on the edges of the river, and Mr. Clean gets one through his chest and he dies, seventeen years old, in the captain's hands. And the captain he's devastated by it. And then the next attack is by Arrows and for the most part they're not harmful. They're just a bunch of kids who made arrows and they're not lethal. And even Willard tells the captain to they're shooting, they're like, Don't shoot the kids. They're just shooting. They're they're not harmful. They're just toy arrows. And then he stops and then he gets a spear through the chest and he dies. Yeah, it's crazy. And then he tries to choke Willard. Yeah, with his final breath he tries to kill Willard. He tries to I think he tries to pull him onto the spear head. I think oh yeah, like maybe. He's trying to pull his face into the spear. Yeah. And um, Lawrence Fishburne, I saw a Bradley Cooper Q&A recently. He's doing press for Maestro, and he said that he went, to a, he went to a Q&A of Lawrence Fishburne. And he said that Lawrence Fishburne said that after filming this movie, when he went home, he actually continued wearing his army costume to school because he couldn't, like, shake the character mm-hmm. and shake the experience. And so he wore his military attire for eight months when he returned home. Wow. He couldn't, like, get rid of, like, what he, the experience in his mind um i thought that was really interesting there's also a sequence that's in the redux that's not in the theatrical cut of when they do run into the girls uh, during that rainstorm in that like little that like secluded bunker area and there's a couple of officers there and the girls are there too and they all they they each have a girl in a different room from the the playmate girls and then lance goes into the chopper with one of the girls, and he starts painting her face <laughs> while she's talking about stuff. And he's like not even listening, but he's he's going insane. And he just like starts painting her face, and then the other guys are they're fighting over like who has dibs on one of the other girls. And so that's a whole sequence that's in the Redux that's not in this theatrical cut. Is it in the final cut? I wonder. I think it is in the final cut. Yeah, just trimmed. But up. But it's not in theatrical. But re- things are getting bad. But also before this, Willard confessed and basically let the captain in on some of the information and he tells them we're going to keep going north into and then the captain says that's Cambodia he's like that's classified then he eventually tells him like we're going into Cambodia and I have to find an officer to kill he tells Chef this afterwards too because the only ones left alive are Willard, Chef, and Lance as they approach and enter Kurtz's world or temple whatever you want to call it his village his his oasis his own little sort of heaven to him and he's a god here it's really fascinating. And they're coming up on the river, and there's all these natives just staring at them. And then there's an American, j- just photojournalist. So, Dennis Hopper's character doesn't have a name. He's just called photojournalist in any casting list. Hopper's great. He's hysterical. He's like, he's like a much needed personality in this film. This very dark film. Yeah, yeah I agree. And he's like kind of a, like a light bulb. He's the, the only person the who movie. smiles in this movie. Exactly, besides, yeah. besides, clean. Yeah, he he's he. We he needed that, and he's very entertaining. In the seventies, he was like the hippie guy, um, especially with Easy Rider. You know, like that that free loving personality. Like he tapped into that really big in the sixties and seventies, and he taps into it in this film too. Definitely he, not in speed. Definitely not in speed. But he's needed. He's necessary for this entire third act for helping us understand what's going on here. And he helps Willard learn that, you know, Kurtz has built himself uh, an army here. This is his oasis. This is where... These are his children. We're all his children. And there's really nothing you can do. And Willard's like, can I talk to Colonel Kurtz? And the photojournalist is like, nobody... You don't talk to him. You listen, but you don't talk to him. And that's a great line of understanding the dynamic between the people and Kurtz in this area where he speaks, nobody ever talks to him, but everybody obeys and listens to every every word. And he calls him a genius multiple times, the full journalist. But also what's really interesting, in the classified files that Willard picked up at the circus war zone area, in that file was some more classified information. Some of it was he's not the first person that's been hired to go kill Kurtz. Another assassin from the army was sent to kill Kurtz, and he went missing. And he's there. He is turned into a disciple of Kurtz. And there are a couple other American soldiers who are also disciples of Kurtz. And at first, they're, they're welcome to enter this area. And Hopper, the, the photojournalist, says, just run your siren. Like, hit him with your siren! <laughs> and then they hit the siren on the boat, and they all, all the native locals, they run away. They're able to enter safely for now but they enter and it's it's so interesting to see that there are other american soldiers who are clearly officers probably in addition to like Willard is yeah, that and, are now yeah. turned into disciples for Kurtz and i like the so the one you mentioned earlier the guy who was assigned to this mission earlier Willard walks up to him recognizes him and the guy just stares at him and he's he's got he's like stroking his gun and there's a scalped head attached hanging to the rifle yeah it's like holy fuck this happened to the guy that was the last guy they sent to kill kurtz what the hell is going on here it's really interesting we we don't see kurtz at first and obviously willard's taken into custody but kurtz knows right away that this man was sent to kill me and willard doesn't try to hide that also the dead bodies are just everywhere yeah they're hanging, they're lying, they're they're stacked, they're they're all over the place. And again, these are real dead bodies. It's horrifying. It's crazy. They used real dead bodies. So what's really what's so fascinating about Kurtz is Kurtz knows that he's sent here to kill him, but in a way, ultimately with the end of the film, he just let him kill him. And so I think that deep down Kurtz wanted to die and end it all. And so I think he allowed. The way I look at the film is he allowed Willard to kill him. Oh, absolutely. I feel like he's just, at the end of the film, sort of just waiting for it to end, waiting for Willard to come and kill him, maybe sort of to make him a martyr in a way for these people, but also just to end his life because maybe Kurtz knows he's gone too far and that there's no going back. He can't go home. He can't go back to his son, who he's tried to explain what's happened because obviously the army has labeled him a murderer. He can't go back to his normal life. And maybe because he's, goes, he's so far gone into his own mythos of him being a god and this god complex that he just wants it to end. And maybe maybe he's brainwashed himself where if I die, I'll become a god. Yeah, maybe. And Willard does have trouble even thinking about killing him because he, just, he does find himself fascinated by Kurtz and struck by him. And at first, Kurtz imprisons him. Holds him captive for a little bit. And he told, so Willard told Chef, if I'm not back in 2200 hours, call an airstrike on the area. And then when Kurtz is in prison and and tied up, I mean, when Willard's tied up, Kurtz drops uh, Chef's severed head on his lap, which is shocking. It's so shocking. Comes out of nowhere. And so there's, there's no way for him to get out of this. But then Kurtz frees him. And then Willard says he spent a few days just wandering around, listening, just being there, just being present in being in Kurtz's presence. And in a way, it was alluring. And he probably, be, probably became very close to being completely intoxicated like the uh, previous assassin was. So he probably almost crossed that line. I think so, too, because like he said in the beginning of the film, he wasn't sure what he'd do when he met Kurtz. It's sort of like he wanted to hear him out to understand why he went AWOL and why this person who has such a great pedigree the most insanely absurd perfect resume in the army would cause him to go this way and there's a really interesting story that Kurtz tells Willard and it's about how when he was in special forces he went to Vietnam and one of their missions was to inoculate a village and to give them vaccinations so they do it to everyone in the village and all the kids and then an old man went blind because of the vaccine the inoculations and so what happened was they drove the army out and then they cut off all of the arms the 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 left arms of all the children because that's where they received the injections and then Kurtz remembers seeing a pile of little arms And that's probably the first instance of him starting to go mad with the horror of war, the horrors of humanity, the horror, the horror. He says it multiple times in this film, that quote from T.S. Eliot. And I think basically from there, that's when he becomes intoxicated with what can happen here. He's seen how far human beings can go, what they're capable of doing. What could he be capable of doing? Could he take advantage of being a force of power? or a powerful being inside this area, inside this war zone. I mean, in a way, he's become his own like version of uh, a government or of a, of a military leadership in a way. Dictator. Yeah, a dictator in a way. Although the people worship him, so. there's. Well, that's what a lot of dictators or emperors yeah. were. They were worshipped, worshipped as gods. Yeah. That's a good point. So that's really kind of what it, he becomes these people worship him, they're his children, they carry out his missions, they carry out his assassinations. Clearly it looks like they kill anyone who doesn't abide by his rules and his <laughs> laws. And the ending is wild. It's a it's a crazy cross cut where Willard, obviously the most iconic moments of the film, the, maybe the most iconic shot of him, covered in mud and just slowly creeping out of the water. One of the best with the, shots. With of the, the f- fog. Yeah, yeah it's, it's incredible. Great. I love that poster as well. And sneaking into the temple to kill Kurtz. But this is all cross-cut with the slaughter of a water buffalo. Now, this is a controversial scene because this is a real water buffalo that was killed. Clearly, when you're watching this, that buffalo is alive. And they cut its head off. Now, Coppola did not do this. The production did not do this. The cast and crew did not kill this water buffalo. The water buffalo is slain as an annual ritual and sacrifice of the local people. This is what they do every year. It's a, a celebration, a feast, and they kill and sacrifice a water buffalo, which they consume. And so they film production. They finished filming. They finished the production, and Coppola basically said they're gonna have this celebration and we're gonna film it and just pick up the shots of it happening. And then they cross cut it really interestingly with the sacrifice and slaughter of Kurtz by Willard. They were actually able to get away with it because it wasn't filmed in America. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't, they wouldn't ever be able to film something like that in America. There's clearly animal abuse in this movie. I mean, what happens yeah. to the puppy is really hard to watch as well because the puppy is pulled from hands to hands, and it yeah. clearly looks like it hurt the puppy as well. And there's another animal that looks like it was hurt in this movie too. The American Humane Association gave the film an unacceptable rating. Well, I mean, they cut off a buffalo's head, so yeah. Yeah, pretty unacceptable. Pre, pre <laughs> They'll give you an unacceptable if you step on an ant. But it's such a... Oh my God, what an amazing edit of cross-cutting between Willard slaughtering Kurtz and then the tribe slaughtering that water buffalo, cutting back and forth, back and forth with that crazy music from the doors. It's just, it's so powerful and it's so incredible to behold, like, it's just, I, I, obviously the Godfather cross-cutting is in, is just infamous. But this one's just as striking, I think, and just as powerful. It is, and the ending is really interesting. And I I know not a lot of people love the ending of this movie. They might feel a little unfulfilled after, obviously, Willard has killed Kurtz with the machete, and now he's leaving this temple in the morning. He's carrying a collection of Kurtz's writings, and everyone eventually starts to worship him. Now they all bow bow to him. And they drop their weapons in front of him as he passes. Because he dropped his weapon. So he dropped the machete, and so they all imitated him. And then he grabs Lance, who is clearly just blended into this temple and the society because he's just lost everything. His mind's gone. He's just, I'll blend in here. This seems good to me. And then they board that ship, the PBR, and they head back downriver and away from the mountain guards. And that's how the movie ends. And I think it's really interesting, really fascinating, because they he killed their god, and now he's become god. He could have been their new god. And you can he see the temptation in his yeah. eyes. He's looking at this crowd worshiping him and waiting for him to say something or do something. And he rejects it. Yeah, I love the ending. Because he could have done what Kurtz was doing. And like you said, you can in Martin Sheen's face, you see that in his mind, he's like, I could stay here. But then he chooses not to. And in a way, he he, uh, he shows that he's much different from Kurtz. And he... He came close, but he, he'll never become, like, a monster like Kurtz was. Yeah. And again, Kurtz let Willard kill him. He doesn't fight back. He's expecting it in a way, like I said, I think he wanted it. And, like, you said he wanted it as well. I think he i think he was just, like... Even he would have even let the other guy kill him, the previous assassin. Mm-hmm. He would have let him kill him, but the assassin just, like, was like, you know what, I'm going to follow you instead. It's interesting. So he, he captures his assassins and then... <clears throat> entices him entices them as maybe sort of a test to see if you'll join me or not. And then obviously Willard doesn't accept it. He's tempted, but doesn't accept. And kills his go- kills the god. The cinematography is so incredible. And like we said earlier, they they lit the scenes with Brando to specifically hide his size. And then my one of my favorite shots is there's this just thin ray of light on Brando and this is when he's playing with his shaved head running his hand up and down it and my god that's just like so one of the most stunning shots I've ever seen and so much of the cinematography with Brando is just incredible like they just lit these scenes and they were just like Brando does his thing and I'm sure they didn't know what he was gonna do uh, which is probably super scary when filming it But man, it is absolutely glorious to behold the cinematography and lighting of these scenes. This whole movie is glorious to behold. It's so well made. The production is astounding, jaw-dropping multiple times, show-stopping performances from Brando and Martin Sheen, and possibly career bests for both of them. And I really love Apocalypse Now. I hadn't seen it in quite a while. It's been at least five or six years since I've watched this film. And I remember I watched it a lot when I was a teenager. Is one of those war movies that I was really into. I watched it like every year, but then I think I'd only seen it a couple times in my twenties. I don't think I've watched it since I turned thirty. But you know, I, I obviously I, I have a huge appreciation for the filmmaking now, which I always did. But it, I think it's just astounding. And of all the movies I've watched this year, whether they're repeat viewings or first time viewings or new releases, this is like top five of what I've seen this year. Yeah, it might be the best movie I've seen this year. Possibly. <laughs> I watch it every year. It's so. I actually so watched good. it this year already. I've seen I see clips and it's obviously referenced a lot in social media, and in film world in the film Twitter, the film TikTok space. I uh, I recommend if anyone who's seen this one to watch the Redux. It's not as strong, but it's really cool to see that extra uh, fifty minutes of footage. It's interesting. It's arguably the best war movie of all time. It's up there. It's like this in Saber and Saving Private Ryan for me personally. Paths of Glory, man. Watch Paths of Paths Glory. To glory. Get it on. Get it on your watch list. On the watch list. The never ending watch list. <laughs> It's sensational. It's so. It's incredible. I can't like when I watch this movie. I can't believe that Coppola pulled it off. Can't believe he did it, man. Can't believe it. Can't believe it. And again, he owns this movie outright. That's crazy. It's not owned by a studio. Wow. Because no one wanted to fucking make this movie. (laughs) No one wanted to be a part of it. No one wanted to give him money. But he got funding from a couple different sources. And obviously, like we said, he put up so much of his own. It's nuts. Then he made the Godfather three because he needed to. (laughs) (laughs) I'm broke. I need that money. I'm broke. I, he's like, I broke even at first. I'm sure he's made plenty of money since. Oh, yeah. He, just, rentals he just funded a $100 million movie himself. No, but I mean just off of this movie. Oh, this movie's very successful. Yeah, now yeah. like streaming in, in VOD and oh, rentals, DVD, VHS, everything. It's, it's up there with DVD sales. It's got to be. It must have been a huge hit at Blockbuster and VHS as well. Yeah, for sure. For sure. For sure, bro. For sure. Also, you can only rent it online, so he's still, he's still making money off of it. Still make money off of it. It was a gamble. And it almost killed him, and it took him about five years to get this movie <laughs> developed and made and released he was attached to it in nineteen forty nineteen seventy four released it in nineteen seventy nine Wow production began in nineteen seventy six insane he i mean he's a filmmaker that when he has like some filmmakers with final cut doesn't quite work some filmmakers it does and then he's a filmmaker where it's like when he has final cut like he makes things that like nobody else could have ever perceived and No studio like this whole movie, if a studio was in control, it would have been like, No, 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 absolutely not. Don't do that. You can't do that. No, 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 no. But he just did his thing and it's he made something that's still so special. It really is. It really is. It's gonna be an all timer forever. Well, you got anything else on Apocalypse Now? That's it, man. All right, thank you. Big one. That was thank you everyone for tuning in to our episode on Apocalypse Now on Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Again, you can support the show by if you're watching on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. Like, leave a comment. If you're watching or listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening, leave a review or a five-star rating. It really helps us get seen. And become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Take care, everybody. See you next time. This episode was executive produced by our Chosen One patrons, Cody Mowen, Andrew Hagan, Becca Keen, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Murphy Griggs, Nicholas Martin, Darian Singleton, Tyler McFly, Andrew Hagan. Our Chosen One patrons are our biggest supporters. Thank you so much. Raiders of the Lost podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.